I'm Mike Gillis. And I'm Casey Doran. And this is Radio vs. the Martians. So how could we have forgot Odo? I, I don't know. <laughs> this is a big show. I, I yeah. don't know. Um, we didn't talk about that. We didn't talk about Vic Fontaine, which is I, I mean, I listened to James Darren's uh, record all the time because he, he did uh, put out a record with all the, the songs that Vic Fontaine sings on the show. Uh, you know, there's so much in this. Yeah, I, I, I'm not a huge fan of Vic Fontaine. I think it's kind of silly that they have a, a bar that's central to the show over the course of seven seasons. And towards the end of the show, they add another bar for them to go in. It's like they go into the bar. <laughs> that's so how much you need to drink. Bar. You like, need more than one bar. It's obviously. a bar inside of another bar. <laughs> it's, it's, a, <laughs> it's like yeah, Inception. I, I, understand, yeah. I understand that it's an indulgence from uh, Stephen I. Robert, who liked jazz and that era. And, but um, but still, I, you know, I'll see you in the holodeck, uh, Hall of Sweet number two or something and we, we can fight it out but <laughs> <laughs> i don't hate but, but it I, I just kind of like i feel yeah. like it's unnecessary the, the, but. it does have i think the well i think the funniest use of rom which is where he's auditioning <laughs> to be uh to, to be in vic fontaine's band and he's he's singing lady is a tramp but he he misremembers the word and he says lady is a scamp and uh, max grodenchik is just so hilarious so fucking hilarious. so is this show it presages uh uh american idol and uh, william hung <laughs> It does because yeah. he basically does that exact same performance. <laughs> but I will say this: this is a question I have about Vic Fontaine. Is that Vic Fontaine comes in in late season six? Is I guess he, if anyone's confused, we're talking about Deep Space Nine because we just released a panel on Deep Space Nine like a week prior to this, right? So, so Vic Fontaine is a 1960s um, lounge singer and uh, club owner, and. I'm going to throw down a gauntlet here. I think that he is the most impressive use of AI that we see anywhere in Star Trek, including more impressive than Data, more impressive than the Doctor on Voyager. I oh. think that uh, he has a an intelligence and an emotional understanding that tops anything that we've seen before. He's not better than AI uh, Moriarty? Um, I think maybe um, he's not like evil. He's not based on a bad guy. That certainly helps. Or the yeah. uh, the butler from the nanny. <laughs> but that's an, it's an untold story because he's kind of a mystery. You know, they they received this this. Um, that's like what Bashir has a friend. I think it's Bashir. Yeah, isn't it? Yeah, some, he has a friend who built this program, and it's all very mysterious. And and Vic has a whole life. Uh, it's not like when the program runs. I mean, it's always running. And um, yeah, I, I don't know if he has to pay uh, some sort, some sort of dividend to uh, to Quark for you know for running an establishment inside his establishment. But but yeah, he, he sees more alive and real, and yet he knows he's an, he's he's also a fiction. But anyway, the, the uh, self awareness is what makes him different. Is that he knows mm -hmm. that he's a collection of I think photons. It, I feel like he's just programmed to f look like he's self aware. I don't think that he's really self aware. And you can say that maybe there's not a distinction between those things. But I get the, I never get the impression that he's anything more than just a program hey, writing. In this universe, a job description you can have is 
being a designer of hollow suite programs. So you can be like the best, like, uh, what's the, what's the artist from the eighties called Suriyama? The guy who always made uh, nude ladies that had really pale skin. You could be like the holodeck author equivalent of Suriyama and make the sexiest holodeck programs. Or you could be like the one like, I make characters so real you think they're existing outside mm-hmm. of the holodeck. But well, think- he does, because in the Mirror Universe, there's a real Vic Fontaine who's not a hologram. Oh. So it's all very, you know, <laughs> mysterious. Uh, but I just love every time they, they use a song in there. Uh, it's always like a very fun moment. Um, or touching. I mean, in that that finale, um, what you leave behind that that song, which fits in the middle of the episode, which is really the goodbye. It, right. You know, it's, those are great moments when Cisco breaks down and decides to go sing a song after you know, kind of rebelling against their the the you know the dated racist program that he thinks they're going to, uh, or that fiction of that fictionalized sixties that he doesn't, you know, tap into. And he, all every time there's like a, a singing moment, it's like, wow, this show is doing this. Yeah. In, in addition to everything else, it's doing stuff like this. That was a thing that I, I really liked with Cisco. You don't realize until that moment that no, he, he hasn't gone into Vix ever before that everyone seems to go in there except for Cisco and his explanation for it. The idea that, it's a lie about what history was that 1960s Las Vegas wouldn't let somebody who looks like him go in there. And it's sort of a whitewashed version of history and that it actually kind of offends him on a moral level and him having to sort of move past that. I kind of, I like the fact that the show had that conversation mm-hmm. because a lot of Star Trek would have just moved past that, that racism is just a, Oh yes, that's that thing that, you know, we used to do back on earth. Isn't that crazy? Well, Frank Gorshin and that other guy are fighting. I mean, (laughs) but actually to confront it and to say that there are marks of that that are left on people that they're uncomfortable with. And especially with someone like Cisco, who is a student of history or or even I mean, I think that it's it. You can draw that same thing and say, you know, Miles O'Brien is a racist or at least was a racist at some point in time. He allowed his stereotypes and anger towards Cardassians during a brief period of time when there was conflict between the Federation and the Cardassians for him to hold essentially what were racist views about Cardassians. And then, of course, you put him on a Cardassian station later from TNG, and it's a racist who has to confront, like, the reality of like, well, I can't hold those beliefs anymore because I actually meet Cardassians who I'm not at war with, you know. But it's also a, an interesting nuance to look at racism because I don't think Miles understands how racist he is, that he does buy into at a very surface level the ideology of the Federation and about diversity and not judging everyone by a limited group of people and he sort of understands that, but you put him in a room with a Cardassian and he suddenly starts acting in ways that he doesn't want to accept that he's acting that way. And it only makes him angrier. And I like that rather than somebody who's very comfortable in their racism, which is usually the kind of racist characters that you create. You have a guy who's very progressive on a lot of different levels who almost can't accept his own racism because mm-hmm. he's able to spout off very progressive sounding ideals that don't really apply to his behavior. And yeah. I like that. And it's that being drawn out of him. That's one of the things I, I've loved that modern Star Trek has done. In many ways, start, uh, Deep Space Nine starts with The Wounded, that, that very episode, because yeah. it introduces Cardassians and it puts Miles O'Brien, who was just this glorified extra, basically, the transporter chief, you know, 
and gives them something to play and discuss that dilemma that you know that turmoil of that and and that tension is what becomes the space nine and so it requires those two elements yeah i i really like that about it i like when star trek challenges it because that was one of the issues with gene roddenberry being involved in early seasons is not Mm. wanting conflict you don't want conflict as a part of your utopia and that was the best part of the utopia is that you can have people that believe in a certain amount of these sort of utopian principles but you also have to put that stuff into action and you get complicated, messy situations. So you have different perspectives. That's how you can have McCoy and Spock argue with each other, even though you can really make the argument that HR really needs to talk to Leonard McCoy about the things he says about Vulcans. Um, but I, I kind of love, I kind of love that we're willing to kind of go there here, that you're willing to have a character that you like espousing racist beliefs and is confronted with his own racism and how it, it affects him, not just the people that he's discriminating against. And he sees himself as a person that he doesn't like in that moment and is forced to make a change. But it's not an easy change. And there's still remnants of him with that person of him into Deep Space Nine, how uncomfortable he clearly is yeah. in missions where he has to work with Cardassians. And I, I like that. I like the messiness of it. I don't like things to be so easily... Uh, fixed by the end of the episode. It's yeah. one of the reasons I dislike the Risa episode so much <laughs> is we just forgive this shit. It's just like, mm. no, this is the sort of shit where Jadzia should have dumped you, asshole. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really disappointed. I, my my apologies, uh, Siskoid, that we we the timing of this could have been better um, because I, as I learned about a month ago or so, that the crowdfunded DS9 documentary is coming out basically three days from now so three days after we recorded our Mm. panel and i'm so disappointed that we can't have that as part of the this podcast because i think it would make when we're doing this now a lot more relevant so we just have to i don't know if you saw it but i missed the day that it was playing no it didn't it didn't play uh where i am they announced it as you know cineplex would play it Somewhere in Canada. Um, Somewhere. Just, yeah, it's not just, like that's a big country or anything. <laughs> yeah. So um, it, it did not play in my area. So uh, I, you know, I, I know about it, obviously. I've been announcing it on my own show for a while. Uh, but did we really need more material to, I to feel like we had no 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 we no. had plenty to talk about for sure nine hour episode I will I will say though that uh, um, they were gonna they got enough money to do something where you know with the entirety of TOS and TNG they basically like found the original 35 millimeter and restored it and scanned it and uh, I think the new documentary has is does a bit of that too I think they uh, as a way to cut part of the uh, documentary together, they were actually able to go back and find the negatives for DS9 and start upresing or start scanning those in for HD quality, which is something we will never get for DS9. Paramount has basically said, it didn't sell enough when we did it for Next Generation, and we don't want to redo the special effects, pay the money to redo the special effects, so we're just not going to do it. That's a hard part is because Deep Space Nine is sort of right on the edge of marketability. Yeah, where it clearly has a really, really dedicated, enthusiastic fan base, but it's never really felt like it's as big as it could be. Like I know when you did the bracket episodes with with villains, uh, Siskoid, people were upset that some of the high ranking villains that were in those brackets were DS9 characters, and it was clear there was a lot of people listening who just had never watched DS9. Well, I have a, that problem with the show, uh, is that. 
I want to cover the, the the entire breadth of Star Trek in all its iterations. But most people in our age group who want to be on the show are fans of TOS, maybe TNG, and I'm saying maybe TNG. You know, it's like TOS, TNG, and then it, it all ends. No one wants to talk about, you know, few people want to talk about Deep Space Nine, where it's my favorite show. Uh, few, even fewer people want to talk about Voyager. Even fewer people want to talk about Enterprise. So <laughs> it's, it's hard to, well, I, I get it, but it's it's hard to find guests. So I do a lot of shows, which are, let's talk about, um, you know, um, uh, marriage institutions in uh, in the alien races. And so I can, we can talk about, you know, we have a topic and we can talk about the entire canon because you know it's not specific to a show but people that want to talk about specifically about a show like you were on the show mike doing talking about cardassians uh we had that show where we talked about um the bromance between uh, o'brien and, and bashir we you know we we've done stuff like this uh you know cisco's leadership style so there are fans out there who want to talk about it but i feel like a lot for a lot of people it begins with tos and maybe ends with tng and they're not even interested in the new Trek that's coming out. I mean, there was just a there. I think there was just this uh, this point where you know Paramount had struck. You know, they they had struck it gold twice, right? They had the first one, the first the original series had struck gold because in syndication, suddenly they found out, oh my god, like this thing will live on forever, right? It was so it was so. It was so uh, transitional for for storytelling, especially sort of genre storytelling on TV. It's going to change it forever, and then they sort of impossibly made the made it again with TNG and had these beloved characters. But apparently, a lot of people in the '90s were Fairweather fans for Star Trek. Yeah. So uh, I mean, and then you have you have DS9 and Voyager who are doing the same and similar things but i think it's you know it's just the people a lot of people love star trek 4 save the whales but probably not a lot of people went and uh and watched star trek 5 you know i saw that that was my first star trek movie in theaters was was star trek 5 oh nice it blew my mind that the original the the, what what to me at the time was oh my god it's a next generation theme (laughs) um was And yeah, it just kind of blew my mind. Anytime I was like, oh my God, I'm in a theater and I'm hearing that music. But yeah, um, it's it's weird to me that it feels like we've sort of, we have this kind of 90s nostalgia that's hitting now, but it really kind of feels like DS9, um, maybe Voyager is getting a little bit, but it's like the farther you go along, you get kind of diminishing returns in terms of what is Paramount or I guess CBS now mm-hmm. willing to invest money in on nostalgia for Trek properties. And it seems like you're going to get a lot of Kirk. You're going to get a bit of Picard. And then after that, like, like we haven't even got a Cisco Funko pop yet. <laughs> and I would perish totally, the thought. <laughs> I would totally buy one of those. Well, there's something to be said for like the characterizations of the characters on TNG and the original series that are so iconic that the characters of Deep Space Nine don't quite, rise to that level of, of being cultural icons. And um, I, I'm not quite sure why that is, but the, but the TNG excels at the, the, the portraits it paints of, it, of its characters in a way that um, you instantly know who Data is. You instantly know who Picard mm-hmm. is. But you don't instantly know who um, Benjamin Sisko is. It takes you a while to kind of to learn to to know to learn more about him and he's there's more depth there but it's not 
it's not there's it's not as apparent on the surface i guess i don't know maybe, maybe i always like it oh, go ahead Cisco. i always like it when i find a reference to deep space nine in pop culture because it happens um i remember very vividly at the time uh there was you know as there was like a cosby show where theo runs upstairs because he doesn't want to miss the wormhole opening um so there there was like that was a weird at the time reference but even now it's like there's we have uh, a local i guess local they're not really local but um there's an acadian rap group called radio radio and so they sing in in our particular argot um so it's it's, it's a french english kind of uh mix we call shiak and um so so they rap in that and they have like a very popular hit in French Canada called uh, j- uh, Jacuzzi, which is all about it's like a it's almost a parody of pimped up music. It's like 50 cent kind of stuff. But there's like the basically the gist of the song is there's enough room in my jacuzzi for the entire universe, basically, because I got the biggest motherfucking jacuzzi. Uh, <laughs> and that's the song. And in in the jacuzzi is Deep Space Nine. <laughs> So Deep Space Nine is in the jacuzzi. Uh, that's how big it is. So, uh, so I mean, that's like, a, what is that reference? Um, and uh, so I, I love it when I find, you know, Deep Space Nine references like that that are not from the period. Because in the period, you could imagine, you know, it's part of television landscape and people would mention it. But when they mention it, you know, years later... You know they're real fans. Well, I mean, there, maybe there's something about uh, you know we as we uh, we say often here on this podcast, the nerds have won, um, and so yeah, of course <laughs> the people are going to love Captain Kirk and Spock because they're icons, they're cultural icons that are definitive. I think maybe a lot of Star Trek fans are happy that DS Nine gets to, still gets to stay in the basement, so to speak. Like it's a great show. You and I know it's a great show, but it's good that they're never going to try to recast. Benjamin Sisko and Major Kira and make it like a movie because that would do a, a disservice, you know? It's impossible to turn it into a movie. You look, yeah. look at episodes of, of Star Trek The Next Generation or the original series, and it's kind of like Law and Order where you could probably watch them in any order and you just make a bigger version of one of those into a movie. You're like, okay, where do I throw these characters into some some crisis? You can't really do that with Deep Space Nine because Deep Space Nine is a serialized drama where there's one long story from beginning to end. And it ends, as as Warbington says here, in a very definitive fashion where you can't just get everyone back together and throw them into a new adventure. No, because- what I'm saying is they're also not going to reboot it. It is also just not enough above sort of the the line of visibility in terms of that as a franchise that they're ever going to be like, we need to do a young DS9 cast and somehow spend half a billion dollars <laughs> trying to make a movie. So it, It's not going to happen. And there's something glorious about that, right? We yeah. don't need to worry about... Like the avarice of like executives that have not a creative bone in their body being like, how can we squeeze more money out of this? It's not going to happen. You yeah. Know? The fact that it's not as quite as iconic makes it sort of sacred. Yeah. yeah. And I think it's it's beautiful thing of it now is it's also on Netflix. Um, the serialized drama that it sort of typifies is the norm now. So there's an entire generation of people who are watching television shows which are highly serialized that are about a growing mythology that are about moving towards a definitive ending whether it's you know breaking bad or lost or game of thrones or any of these shows and 
Game of and Deep Space Nine is right there for them to pick up. It's right there for them to discover. And I think people are going to be a lot more ready for it now because, I mean, not only is the 90s back in a big way where I don't know why, you know, Generation Z are watching reruns of Friends again, but I guess they are. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, it's right there. And I think that it's kind of like we said with The Last Action Hero is that it was made in a world that wasn't really ready for it yet. Uh, but your kids are going to love it. <laughs> well, I've got we've got Ciscoid on here, and and Mike and I were chatting about this over the phone and with Warb in the car. Um, I want to hear Ciscoid's uh, hot take on Star Trek Picard, if you have one. If you haven't already, uh, have one in the chamber. I mean, uh, well, I mean, I, I don't. So that's what makes it hot, right? Um, <laughs> I have I I haven't seen the new trailer. Oh, okay, you're so you're out. So I've only seen like bottles and. So I'm kind of out of the loop. I, I was going to – I didn't know if I wanted to watch it for something, and so I didn't. Um, and, you know, like I was telling Mike earlier, I, I've had like this crazy summer where I'm halfway on the road all the time. Um, so I just didn't – I didn't watch it, and then I com- continued not to watch it is basically what happened. Uh, what do we know? We know that, uh, you know, the new trailer, does it say anything much more? Than what we already sort of knew? Kind of. I mean, a little bit. It doesn't give you any outright narrative, but it's Picard coming out of retirement because there's a young girl who's important for some reason. We see a lot of people that may be Romulans, um, and that's kind of it, really. Okay. I mean, well, we see that, that it's going to incorporate data into the story somehow. It's going to incorporate or be before whoever, most likely. Yeah. And uh, Seven of Nine shows up, uh, as well as they've mentioned that um, the actor who played um, Hugh is going to be returning in some capacity, um, although okay. we haven't seen him yet. We haven't seen Riker and Troy, but we've been told that they're going to make an appearance. Yeah. They're going to be fucking, fucking on screen. Because that's <laughs> the one thing that the one thing that it took to get to a movie was to see Riker and Troy coitus. And even then they had to <laughs> CGI out his back hair, you know, to make it more sanitized. Did for they our... CGI out his back hair? Hell yeah, they did. Oh, man. You got, that, you got that Riker back hair. Apparently that was that was the reason that uh, Shatner did not like uh, having to lose his shirt, he, that it wasn't his idea because he had to shave his chest. Oh. And he mm. really hated that. <laughs> wow. Well, I don't have a hot take necessarily so much as, I mean, I'm open to all of it is the thing. So I'm treating the Star Trek franchise like I treat the Doctor Who franchise, which is my other love. Uh, and maybe my greater love is the Doctor Who universe. And um, and I'm open to all of it. So I'm not one of those people who says, uh, although you will hear me criticize Voyager quite a bit, uh, I'm not one of those people who says, you know, that such and such an era of Star Trek or of Doctor Who is not valid. That such and such a crew or such and such a Doctor is not valid. Uh, I take the good with the bad and, uh, I'm open to anything that's coming up, even though, you know, I don't know enough to, to criticize it, to say it's good or it's bad. Um, so I'm interested. I want to see that. I, you know, it's, uh, it's actually going to show us. And I think discovery is going to do the same in season three to a gr- even greater extent, but the future, the future. Exactly. Yes. Let's. Let's stop the, you know, the, the, the navel gazing retro stuff that doesn't quite well, fit. Yeah, between uh, Enterprise and the, the film reboots and Discovery, we've and had three prequels and reboots too, yeah. in a row. 
Right. And the next, uh, you know, the, the cartoon series is going to take place in the TOS era. And um, so, OK, let's let's see what's after Voyager at this point. What is later? Because, you know, the, the it's, it's going to be easier to sell a future that looks like what we can create with the future than saying, yeah, yeah, I know the uh, the original Enterprise didn't uh, really look like that. But, uh, you know, we all had, you know, Iron Man. Uh, you know, uh, 3D stuff going on uh, back then. We just didn't never showed it. You know, it's like mm-hmm. Discovery's like it's a special ship. Let's stop doing that and just show us the future because it's always been about looking forward. And we've looked back quite a lot. So uh, I'm happy to see Picard, even though he's not in Starfleet, uh, having one last adventure kind of thing. Uh, and uh, I think there's a there's certainly an audience for it with, you know, we have an aging population that not only remembers Picard and liked him in the eighties and nineties, but it, it's also stories that, that touch them more because they are Picard's age. Yeah, so yeah. all these, these aging sci-fi um, uh, fans, this is their story. This is going to tap into things that they feel and that we're going to feel eventually when, you know, in 20, 30 years ourselves. So it, you know, stories like baby boomer stories basically are more relevant. Uh, so I think it's going to tap into some of that as well. And if they're bringing back all these people, it's like a big TNG reunion splurge fan service kind of ooh kind of stuff. So <laughs> yeah, no, no, I, I, I'm there for it. I'm there for it just like I was there for Discovery Warts and all. So well, um, well, it's not a very hot take. Mike, take. Mike and I talked about this that Patrick Stewart was already involved in sort of a really poetic and brilliant closing out finale of another character that he played for a long time which was the professor x character in logan yeah um and 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 i don't mean they're they seem to be not committing on whether or not picard is a single series single season run and it will end or if it will have other ones but i think the reason why patrick stewart is doing it now despite the fact that he said after nemesis that he had retired the character and he didn't care anymore is because he saw the potential of how when done right, you can retire a character and have it be really emotionally affecting, narratively satisfying, and also one last good ride. You when know? done right, no can defense. <laughs> yes. Which Nemesis wasn't. Yeah, right. it whiffed it. Um, yes. <laughs> but yeah, I think you really, when it's done right, that's a part of it. When it And things feel earned where it isn't just a... I mean, you know, nostalgia and fan surface is going to be part of it, and there's no getting around that, and I'm fine with it, but disguise it a little bit. Make it part of the story, giving me a reason to see things. Uh, what well, I can well, I hope to see is I would love to see not an explanation or stopping the story to explain post-DS9 stuff, but maybe have a Starfleet uniform on a Cardassian or something and make no big deal about it. Something like that would, that would just be intriguing kind of the way that Worf was when he showed up in a Starfleet uniform. Don't tell That's me how it ha- happened. Yeah, I like that kind of stuff. Just kind of show it to me and make me go, ooh, I want to see that story told eventually. But don't tell it to me right now. You know, Tell mm-hmm. me about Picard right now. Things can be done well because, I mean, uh, arguably, the last season of Discovery was very much fan service-y uh, you know, especially the the, the participation of um, Captain Pike, hmm. right? That's fan service, and yet they made they made a Captain Pike that you know rose up in the ranks of my favorite captains very quickly. So this was this was one of the my favorite things about 
the season was Captain Pike. And it is it started out as sort of a fan service idea. Uh, and maybe they went back a little bit too much to the cage. I mean, they kept referencing the cage um, where but, I wanted it to be more. But but still, that portrayal of Captain Pike was, wow, this is why I'm watching this show right now. I think what that worked about Captain Pike is that it was a character that we had seen very little of. So he was mm-hmm. this this kind of critical figure in the development of the show, but really was never fleshed out at all. So that's the perfect kind of character to revisit and to tell more about and to tell his story because we've we're not telling us his story again we're telling it for the first time and so my my worry about a show about picard is that we're just going to be telling the same story again but my impression of it is that patrick stewart was not at all interested in telling the same story again he was interested because it was something new and that mm-hmm. makes me really interested in what the, what that's going to be yeah me too I'm I'm hopeful in a cynical kind of way. Although you haven't uh, <laughs> you haven't <laughs> you haven't subscribed to CBS All Access, so you're just you're going to see it in like the year 27 or 2027. I think. Well, it's it's kind of weird because I know it costs the same no matter when I sign up for it. But the longer I wait, the more I get when I do sign up That's for true. it. You're, so. you're, you're a trade waiter, even if it comes to on-demand television. Hell yeah, I am. <laughs> I know that there's going to come a point where I can sign up for a month that I can just take off as a vacation. And in that time, I can watch all of Discovery, all of Picard, all of Jordan Peele's Twilight Zone. All at once. I don't have to spend over several months to get that. Mike, you're killing the industry. You're killing it. And with my avocado toast. <laughs> we've, we've had this conversation before, but I am all about like um, min, paying, min, min maxing your subscriptions. No, I'm all about paying for uh, Star Trek and yeah. putting my money where my mouth is. And I've been asking for a new Star Trek show for years. I was sad and when Enterprise was canceled. And if... The, I was in a financial situation then where I could have subscribed to something that showed with my dollars that this is what I wanted to see. I would have Mm. done so. So now that there's a new show on and there's going to be more new shows on, I will pay a reasonable amount for that show and 10 bucks a month for three months out of the year to watch my favorite show or my favorite franchise is is something I can afford to do and will continue doing and endorse anybody else to Oh, you bastard! <laughs> yeah, it just runs on our the equivalent of our sci-fi station. Oh. So, if it, as if I wasn't uh, angry enough that you get good health care. <laughs> you in Europe, it's on Netflix. So oh man, it's, it's just because we can't get CBS All Access out, out of your. You know, it doesn't come out of the country. So yeah. uh, all, Paramount or CBS has deals with other providers elsewhere. So I just want to say, Siskoid, if you want to have encapsulated in this little moment, this is a microcosm of what it's like to be an American. <laughs> Everybody gets it but us. <laughs> no, we you have to no, pay for it. Pay and yeah. pay. We got to pay and pay. You sure. know what's free yeah. to us? Crappy reality TV shows. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's not free. I, I guess I pay cable, right? Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, almost exclusively for uh, TCM. Because <laughs> I watch oh, nice. a lot of movies, nice. But um, uh, you know, and we have an Oscar party, or you know, there might be some sort of big sports game that people want to see, and nobody pays for cable anymore except me. So uh, the whole, you know, I, I'm a big. Uh, I don't like to go out, but I like to host things. So um, uh, people will huddle around my my television for whatever. So I keep cable around, sort of thing. But yeah, uh, all the all the CBS All Access stuff is actually coming to. Space, the Imagination Station. Uh, so, 
so over here it's not free because I pay for cable, but you know it's um, next to it. I don't have to pay an extra service. So wait, uh, does uh, does the Space Channel in Canada does it follow the same track as say the Sci-Fi Channel in the United States, where it was a channel that started off initially about sci-fi and then. As it for the for, as the sort of demands of advertising move it forward, it's suddenly like airing like Sharknado Seven, Lorenzo ha- Llamas versus Giant Lobster, <laughs> or it's having shows about ancient aliens building the pyramids. Is that what space is like? In the space channel no. is like oh, no, that sounds like TLC. Um, <laughs> no, yeah, no, uh, space is uh, just you know sci-fi, sci-fi and fantasy programming. So, Damn you, sir! Uh, Damn you! Yeah, and it does it does skew because. I mean, the CRTC, um, you know, there, there's a certain amount of Canadian content that must be shown on on cable, even cable stations. And so there are some little, they sort of do little like five minute vignettes that are produced here about, I don't know, Vulcan Alberta or something and stuff like that, or convention stuff, as long as it's produced here. But it does mean that there's quite a lot of, I don't know, Highlander stuff. You know, oh. like stuff that's stuff that was made here that Wait, nobody does, wants to watch. Does X Files count? Does X Files count as Canadian television? No. Oh, it it does not. I don't think so. It was, so it's, it was it's got to be. Canada. It's got to have a Canadian production company. Oh, really? Can- so we. So it's like weird stuff, like yeah, like all the Highlander series used to run. Uh, <laughs> you know, like it's like how much Highlander was made uh, <laughs> too, because it was always too on much. Well, I was going to say, isn't the uh, isn't the Expanse show? Is that was that a Canadian uh, production company or just filmed in Canada? A lot, yeah. You know, a lot of stuff is just filmed in Canada. No. It'll turn up on on space as a matter of course, you know, just because it's science fiction programming. But um, but I don't know that it is Canadian. Mm. Everything that's being made in well, right now Toronto is is kind of booming in that in that respect. But you know, everything was made in British Columbia. Uh, you know, name it. You know, uh, X Files, yes, but uh, Battlestar Galactica and uh, Eureka, and um, anyway, there are plenty, right? Um, I, I'm almost at a loss for for words trying to name them all. <laughs> um, but, yeah, but all of that stuff it does not count as Canadian content, oh. uh, except except maybe the Primeval, the season of Primeval that that takes place in Vancouver itself. I mean, there's one like there's like the last season of Primeval, the New World, takes place in Vancouver, playing Vancouver plays itself uh, in that. Mm. So I think that's Canadian content probably, and probably Continuum, that time travel show, hmm. uh, takes place in actual Vancouver. Are you telling so, me that there's actually television where Vancouver isn't just a stand-in for Seattle? <laughs> <laughs> at, at least, at least those two shows, Continuum. It's it's Vancouver because in the future they they live in New Vancouver or something, and then she time travels back uh, and tries to stop time terrorists, and that's in Vancouver playing itself. And then that that awful primeval. Well, primeval's always been bad. Uh, the one with uh, time anomalies that that le- release. Creatures built for uh, walking with the dinosaurs and and all of that. <laughs> no, uh, it's by the same people. So yeah, it's the same models. Um, like walking with the prehistoric beasts. So they'll turn up in Primeval. Um, <laughs> and there's like two seasons in the UK, and then they made a season in Canada, and it takes place in Vancouver. So as itself. Oh wow! <laughs> so, so at least those two shows, and you know, probably a lot of you know actual Canadian shows that take place in actual places in Canada that we do have our own, you know, production 
It's kind of stuff that's not made for the U.S. I know, but just just as we are, are live with the wool totally closed over our eyes, I think the only things that we ever see are stuff that gets shipped from Great Britain via PBS, and that is the extent of the foreign programming that we're allowed to have here. I, I is it, has it been carried over by you know by gentle gloved hands over the pond from Britain <laughs> to be on our television? Yes, then you can have it. If it's not from there, you can't watch it. It's not possible. <laughs> and you're only allowed to watch it in between like 45 minute blocks of PBS Fun Drive. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I've seen a lot recently. I've seen like Canadian production companies investing in projects, uh, in particular science fiction, because that's my interest, but um, in projects. And you'll see like the Torchwood. Yeah. Torchwood, you think you think BBC. But at the end of the credits, it says like a CBC, BBC co-production. And the, the only reason, I mean, never has Captain Jack set foot in Canada. I mean, it takes place in Cardiff. And I mean, playing itself, and then that's it. But uh, but because there's a like that arrangement, I think that's probably a loophole, so they can play Torchwood on Canadian TV and still count it as Canadian content. Oh. Hmm. So you can't get oh, yeah. original Star yeah. Trek considering both Leonard Nimoy and, and <laughs> William Shatner were Canadian? Yeah. <laughs> I, I'm not sure how the TV stuff works. I, I used to work in radio, so I knew how, you know, songs, I know how to play songs as Canadian content. And that one's pretty loose. It's like, it's, it's kind of ridiculous even because you can have like the, the production company could be Canadian. The singer could be Canadian. The writer of the song could be Canadian and the, the writer of the music could be Canadian. If two of those are true, it's Canadian content. (laughs) (laughs) So so you could have, I don't know. Um, you know, you could have Beyonce, which is an American, you know, Beyonce singing, but the song is written by Canadian, and the music is written by Canadian, and she's even uh, put, you know, putting it on re- on a record in the U.S. It's still Canadian content, so uh, you know it's like there's like weird loopholes like that. But uh, when you're programming music, you're not really you, you're you know you're not trying to fake this you know to, to cheat the system. So you're playing usually what you want are you know Canadian artists singing, but you could have a Canadian artist singing music that was written somewhere else and a song written somewhere else uh and they made the mistake of i don't know recording it in the in the uk or something it's not canadian content even though it's your canadian artist that you know well it's so i don't know about tv it you seems know, it's like probably those, something like that those strange ideas that are clearly measures that are meant to like oh i don't know keep jobs in your country which are mm-hmm. now seem like such a weird relic of the past when you consider that like everything's basically global like there is no you there is no barrier you don't you don't have to watch the same tv networks and aren't aren't you know completely locked into exactly what they want to show you can see anything on the internet it seems those things seem awfully archaic i suppose but it's it's, it's not really it's not really true because if i try to see american content on on the internet i will be blocked Oh, it will say this video cannot play in your country. Sure, sure. And when you're watching, like, for example, I I say like the Super Bowl, Mm -hmm. everybody watches the Super Bowl, if not for the sport ball, because of the, the 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 commercials and the trailers. Well, guess what? In Canada, it's the the station, the station switches and you're watching the Canadian feed. So you see the game, but the commercials are Canadian. So you're you're not getting all the fancy uh, commercials and trailers that the Americans are seeing. So there, there is some protectionism there. Hmm. Hmm. 
Well, I assume that if you st- you wander astray from YouTube, you probably will end up finding something. If you go as far down into the darkness as Daily Motion, I'm sure you probably <laughs> yeah. can find your way out. Daily I mean, Motion is a pirate ship in <laughs> international waters. Yeah. If you're willing to wait, and uh, I mean, anything can be you know pirated, but uh, <laughs> of course, of course. I, I, yeah. I think I was uh, uh, one point I was doing some research for one of our panels, and I was basically going through archive.org which is the internet archive that's mostly famous for taking little snapshots of websites in the history of the internet having the goal to try to preserve as much of what the flux that is the internet and there's this whole section that is community audio so uh community audio is essentially a place where if we wanted to Mike and myself, or if you wanted to, Siskoid, we could like, oh, well, let's just put our shows on community audio because they'll take anything, they're free to anyone, and they'll 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 store those indefinitely, basically. And of course, people are you know uploading Beyonce's latest album or something, and I'm sure it gets removed eventually, I guess. But it's basically just a big waste bin of people dumping stuff that's there. And I and I would mine this also for my job when I could just listen to something like a radio play or someone reading a book. And there was a was it a Isaac Asimov radio play or something in BBC? And I was like, oh, this is fine. I'll listen to it. And then the first comment on there is, how dare these people upload something that is available on the BBC website in CD form to buy? Surely we are in the dark side of the internet. And I'm like, <laughs> of all the things that can happen on the internet, like buying biological weapons or... Accidentally you know, coming across a snuff film right, or an it, auction for children. The darkest part is like being able to download like a BBC radio play from the 80s. <laughs> you, sir, have lived a sheltered life. <laughs> <laughs> the dark side the dark web the dark web <laughs> this is a... oh oh man <laughs> radio versus the martians is hosted by mike gillis and casey doran this podcast is recorded in beautiful valverde in seattle washington our chief engineer is casey doran and our editor is mike gillis our original theme music is written and performed by james wetzel Special thanks to Sam Mulvey, Rob Kelly, James Wetzel, Paul Rue, Tobias Panshin, Scott Kramer, Kyle Hepworth, and Todd Maxfield Matsumoto. Please take the time to rate and review our show on iTunes and Stitcher, and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. And if you'd like to support the show financially, please consider becoming one of our Patreon subscribers. Even just a dollar a month gives you access to exclusive episodes. And you can always find us online at RadioVersusTheMartians.com. He's convinced Commander Riker doesn't like him. Why? Did you crash the ship into something? No, he just doesn't like me. He doesn't even know you. That's right. You should go talk to him. About what? Perhaps something you have in common. He likes jazz, poker, he's Canadian. Yeah? My grandfather was from Canada. There you go. Hi. Excuse me. I'm gonna go talk to somebody. 
Good evening, sir. Lavelle. Something I can do for you? No, sir. I just came to eat another drink. Is there something wrong with that? No. Actually, I... Uh, what are you having? A drink and ale. Good choice. I'll have one, too. My grandfather was Canadian, you know. Really? Aren't you one, too? The grandfather? <laughs> no, Canadian, sir. Canadian. No, I grew up in Alaska. Oh. Well, they both get a lot of snow. <laughs> it was good talking to you, sir. Yeah. Your ale, Ensign. 